might be turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 will be our first passage tonight out of several that we'll be looking at together. Wonderful to see all of you. Thank you for being here. I know that you've had a long day. You've been to work. You've been at school. You've been engaged in all the different activities of life, but you're here. And I appreciate that so very much. As Christians, we believe in God's abundant loving kindness for all people. In fact, we have even sung together about that tonight. I love the third stanza of that song, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. We speak of God's love. We sing of his love. And and we should do that. We should celebrate the great love that God has. And yet, as we affirm God's love and God's goodness, there is one biblical doctrine, one biblical doctrine that seemingly presents a problem. And that is the Bible's teaching about hell. Skeptics will point to the Bible teaching of hell and they will say, if God is a God of love, as you say, then how can he send people to hell for eternity? Now, I would quibble a bit with the phrasing of the idea that God sends people to hell, and that will become clearer as we make it through our lesson tonight. But the skeptics look at this teaching, and they hold this up in front of us as Christians and as believers, and they say, you call this love? You say that your God is a God of love, and yet at the same time, you say that people will spend eternity in hell? The thing is, they're not telling us something that we don't know already. Uh, Christians know that the New Testament teaching about hell is an intolerable doctrine. We know that. Uh, There are no Christians who say, man, I just love this teaching that people will spend eternity separated from God and suffering. Man, that's great. No one does that. Uh, We know that the doctrine is not pleasant. It's not enjoyable. This is not something that Christians celebrate. The thought of people suffering throughout eternity is not something that any Christian finds amusing. And yet, the Bible teaches it. Although we don't like the teaching. Scripture is filled with teaching on this subject. There have been many defenders of Christianity who have sought to talk about hell and and defend the logic of it and the rationality of it. But it seems to me as I have read their works and I've watched their videos that so often 
what they end up doing in their efforts to defend what the Bible says about hell, ultimately they end up softening and backing away from the clear biblical teaching on the subject. In their efforts to make it more understandable and more attainable for people to grasp, it it seems that what they have done at the same time is to try to make the doctrine more palatable and easier to swallow. But you know, as well as I do, that the biblical teaching about hell is not palatable. This is never a pill that we will enjoy swallowing. And yet scripture teaches it, and so must we. But with that said, I want to tell you as we begin the lesson tonight, I make no claims of certainty on some of the things that I'm going to be saying tonight, and I don't think you should either as we deal with this subject, because we are dealing with something that is completely outside of our human experience, aren't we? And as we talked about on Sunday, when, when we saw these passages where, where men had this encounter with the presence of God, you remember talking about Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah in a vision saw the glory of Jehovah. And we talked about Ezekiel 1 and, and John chapter, or John in Revelation chapter 1, rather, those men saw something that was completely outside of their experience, and yet they took that and they tried to explain it to us in ways that we can grasp in our minds. And so as we think about the subject of hell, there are going to be questions that we have. There are going to be elements of this that that we're curious about, that we'd like to know more about, but we just can't speak with certainty on some of these matters. My aim tonight is not to prove that hell exists. I'm assuming that hell exists. I am accepting the Bible's teaching on the fact that it exists. My aim, though, is twofold. First, I want us to look at what Scripture says about hell. How does Scripture depict it? How is it described? And secondly, I'd like for us to think a little bit about the logic behind it. How can we make sense of this teaching about hell as we think about the love of God, which seems to be the opposite of hell? So let's talk first a little bit about the nature of hell. How does the Bible describe this place? Well, the Bible says that it is a place of eternal fire. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. In verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery 
hell. Eternal fire, the fiery hell. Look at Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Matthew 25 and verse 41. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. So you see that same expression used there. Uh, In Mark chapter 9, you see the expression unquenchable fire. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43, parallel passage to what we just read in Matthew 18 Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 48 says the same thing, that the fire is not quenched. In Matthew chapter 13, you see this expression, the furnace of fire. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 42, in the parable of the tares and in the explanation of this parable, Jesus says, Matthew 13, 42, that he will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal fire, the furnace of fire. And in Revelation chapter 19, you see this phrase, the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19, I'd like for you to look at this one. Revelation 19 and verse 20. Revelation 19 and verse 20 The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Let's talk about that word for just a moment, brimstone. Your translation might say something different there. It might say the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. I'm going to insert a little bit of levity into the sermon here, okay? Because we're dealing with a pretty heavy subject, and I think a little lightheartedness is in order. I despise boiled eggs. Good. I'm getting some nods of agreement. Good. What do you think I hate about boiled eggs? What does everybody hate about boiled eggs? the smell. Folks, if something smells that bad, are you going to put it in your mouth? What is that? Now, listen, I I know we're in the South and and this is potluck country and boiled eggs are like the go-to item for people when it's potluck time. I get it. And listen, you can have mine. All right. But do you know what that smell is? It's the sulfur in the egg white combining with the iron in the yolk. And when those come together, there's a chemical process and it puts out this horrible odor. 
Revelation 19 and verse 20 says that hell burns with fire and boiled eggs, sulfur. That's what hell smells like. Okay, I'm not certain about that part. There's a reason they're called deviled eggs. Revelation 19, 20. That's it. Devil, they're from the devil. That's why they smell so bad. All right. So as I got a few nods of agreement, I also got some of these. I told you it was a heavy subject. Let's laugh a little bit. All right. Now, what else does the New Testament say? about hell. It says that hell is a place, that hell is a place that is away from the presence of the Lord and that it is a place of outer darkness. Let's talk about that second one first. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13. Matthew 22 and verse 13 In the parable of the marriage feast, Jesus says that the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, you see the phrase again. Matthew 25 and verse 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then this expression. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9 says that hell is a place of eternal destruction where those who are there are away from the presence of the Lord. Those who are in hell are away from the presence of the Lord. I want you to think about this idea, very simple idea. Hell is everything that heaven is not. Hell and heaven are opposites. In heaven is God's presence. In hell, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is God's absence. His presence is not there. In heaven, there is God's light. There is no sun There is no need for it, for the Lamb is its light, the book of Revelation says. In heaven is the light of God, and yet hell is a place of outer darkness. In heaven, the righteous serve God continually. But in hell, the wicked are tormented continually. So go back to Revelation. Let's go to chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Let's read verses 14 and 15. John sees many who are clothed in white robes. And he is asked, who who are these? Where do they come from? And so verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. I, I don't know the answer, but you do, John says in this vision. And he says to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. 
The righteous serve God day and night. And yet when you go to chapter 20 of Revelation, chapter 20 and verse 10, Revelation 20 and verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The words and the imagery of the New Testament are very difficult for us to grasp, but we put all of this together Everlasting fire, eternal fire, unquenchable fire, outer darkness, away from the presence of the Lord. What we see when we look at this composite picture the New Testament gives us about hell is that hell is a place that is unspeakably horrible. And it is not a place that we want to be. But we need to understand, beloved, that hell is not a physical place place. It is not a physical place. Hell is a part of a spiritual realm of existence. And this is difficult for us to grasp as finite beings. But since hell is not a physical place that I mean, you, you see this in the cartoons all the time, right? So, so the cartoon character gets out a shovel and he starts digging a hole in the ground and he digs deep and he digs deep and he digs deep and finally he comes down to this fiery pit in the center of the earth and that's depicted as hell. We do know that that's not how it works, right? It doesn't work like that. It is not some physical location that if we just dig deeply into the ground enough, we're gonna find this bottomless pit. It doesn't work like that. And since it is not a physical place, our interpretations of what the scripture says about hell cannot be understood by the physical limitations of human experience. We need to, to understand that that the things that the Bible says about hell are not things that we are going to be able to grasp through our earthly temporal senses. We should not assume that the physical realities of our experience are true in eternity. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. We just looked at a number of passages that spoke about hell as a place with fire, eternal, unquenchable fire. What does fire do? Well, it gives off heat and it gives off light. How can a place with eternal fire also be a place of outer darkness? How does something that gives off light not give off light? Or how about this one? How can people be joyful in heaven while knowing that they have friends and family who are not there? You see, I understand that that we wrestle with those kinds of questions. And I know that that question in particular, how can I be joyful in heaven if I have loved ones who are in hell? I understand the, the emotional point being made with that. But those questions assume 
that the physical realities of our experience are also present in eternity. And I think that's an assumption that needs to be challenged. So, let's talk a little bit then about the logic of hell. How can we make sense of this place that the Bible says is unspeakably terrible? Well, let's start in Matthew chapter 25. We may have a hint there of a good beginning point. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 seems to indicate that hell was created not for human beings, at least not initially, but it was created for the devil and for his angels. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That seems to speak to the purpose as to why hell originally existed. It was there for the devil and for his angels. But contrast that with what is said about heaven in verse 34. Jesus says to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, it seems that there are two destinations. And one of them has been prepared for those who are righteous and godly. But another has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 seems to support this as well. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. There were angels who sinned and God consigned them to hell. In Revelation chapter 20, again, Revelation 20 and in verse 10, we read this just a moment ago, Revelation 20 and verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil and his angels, the devil and his minions are there. Hell seemed to be created for them. And yet, the New Testament also says that if people choose to, they too can go there as well. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me ask you, whose names would be in the book of life? Whose names would not be in the book of life? People. People's names are written in the book of life. Who is it whose names are not in the book? People. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This verse enumerates some of the sins that the people who are cast into hell are guilty of. Yes, there are others. And although hell seems to have been created for the devil and his angels, people who choose to align themselves with the devil and his angels incur the same judgment. But the Bible also tells us that God does not want anyone to go to this place. In Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel 18, a, a question is asked that helps us think about this point. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23 God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Verse 32, he answers the question. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. The concept that that many people have of God is that he is just the grand judge in the sky who, who is sitting there waiting to punish people because he just enjoys punishing people. And, and when people are cast into hell, they picture God as just taking in this ah, barbecue. That is not how God is depicted. He plainly says in this passage, I have no pleasure when people die. In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us that God does not want anyone to perish. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. He doesn't want people to go to hell. He wants them to be saved. And he has shown his mercy to all of humanity in the cross of Christ so that men can be spared. But we need to understand this. Just because God wants people 
to be saved. That doesn't mean that he will force them or coerce them into being saved. What God wants to happen may be different from what actually happens. I want my children to obey me, but they don't always do it. For a person to be saved from his sins, he has to accept the gospel of Christ. He must choose voluntarily to obey the gospel. But suppose we have a man who has lived his entire life as an enemy of God. He is hostile to God in every aspect of life. He wants nothing to do with church. He wants nothing to do with religion. He wants nothing to do with the Bible. He pushes God out of his life continually. He pursues a life of wickedness and his conscience becomes so seared that he will not listen to God. What should God do with that man? What is the proper eternal destination for this man? If this man has free will, which he does, because God gave all of us the freedom to make choices, what should God do with him? Does he just usher him into heaven even though he doesn't want to be there? He has made that clear his entire life. He wants nothing to do with God. Does God say, well, listen, just come on in anyways? Or does God put his arm around his neck and just drag him in and say, well, listen, I know what's better for you. You should just come on in here anyways. No, God's not going to do that. Do we expect God to just say, listen, I know you've hated me your entire life. I know that you've pushed me away for 75 years. I know that. But I'm just going to forgive you anyways. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Come on in. The water's fine. Is that what we expect God to do? Where's the justice in that? God is a God of justice. The Bible tells us repeatedly. Where's the justice in that? So if we object to the doctrine of hell, we have to ask this question. What is it that we're asking God to do? Well, what do we want God to do with this man? You say, well, I, I think it would be great if God would, would be willing to take away this man's sins and offer him eternity in heaven. And as Christians, we say, yeah, that's exactly what he did. His name is Jesus. The fact is that in the end, God gives people what they choose. God will give people what they have chosen throughout their lives. Those who choose God will be received by God. And those who have rejected him 
God will not force himself upon them. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas were preaching, Acts chapter 13 and in verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Now, I want you to notice what they say next. Since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. I want you to notice that language that Luke records for us. Paul and Barnabas have been pleading with this crowd to obey the gospel. And here are these hostile Jews who are jealous at the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And so they are trying to undo what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And they say, you are repudiating the gospel and because of that, you've judged yourself to be unworthy of eternal life. So let me use a relationship illustration that might be helpful to you. Here is a young man who is pursuing a young woman. He's very attracted to her. He thinks that she is a wonderful person. And he comes up to her and he says, listen, I think you're so great. I, I am just so interested in you. Would you please go out with me next Friday night? And she says, no. No, thank you. But undeterred, he, he comes back and he says, no, listen, you don't understand. I, I, I think I'm in love with you. I, you are just so perfect. You're so beautiful inside and out. You're just amazing. I, I've seen you. I've known you for so long. We've been to school together. I just, I'm in love with you. Would you please go on a date with me? And she says, no, I thought I was clear last time. But he comes back a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. And finally, she says, well, you stop it. My next phone call is to the police for a restraining order. Get away from me, leave me alone. Now listen, if the young man really loves her, what should he do? He should honor her wishes and leave her alone. Do you see the parallel of the illustration? Throughout the sinner's life, God has been knocking on the door. Every day, the sinner enjoys the sunshine that God put in the sky. Every season, the rain falls, the crops grow, the sinner eats the food that God has put upon the earth. Every day, the sinner breathes in the air that God has made. He enjoys every blessing of life. 
God puts men and women into this sinner's life who are encouraging him and trying to have an influence on him. And they are saying, hey, come to church, read the Bible, come be a part of this. This is a wonderful thing. And every single blessing that this sinner enjoys, he pushes away, he pushes away, he wants nothing to do with it. He says, God, leave me alone. And in the end, God says, okay. I'll leave you alone. It was C.S. Lewis in the book, The Great Divorce, which is not a book about divorce. It's a book about eternity. It's a fictional work about heaven and hell. It's a fascinating read. Lewis said, in the end, at the judgment day, there are two kinds of people. There are those who, who are welcomed into heaven because they said to God, thy will be done. And there are those who will be in hell because God says to them, thy will be done. This is what you've wanted. You've pushed me out of your life for your entire life. God simply honors their choice. So I quibble a little bit with this idea, well, that God sends people to hell. I think there are just many who judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. But still, as we wrestle with this topic, we have to know that God's wisdom and his justice and his righteousness is always perfect. In Genesis chapter 18, you have the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this has always been a fascinating story to me because Genesis is going to great lengths to, to show us the relationship that God has with Abraham and the closeness that they enjoy together And as God is looking at the wicked cities of the plain and he is ready to destroy them, God says, how can I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I need to say something to Abraham about this. So in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 23, Abraham came near and he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Now notice how he ends this in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Will not God make the right decision? That's an important point that Abraham recognized that we need to recognize. As we think about this doctrine of hell, eternal fire, eternal punishment, outer darkness, away from the presence of God, we say, this is unsettling. We don't like this. How is this fair? This doesn't make sense. And we, we raise these objections, and those objections are understandable. But the fact is, beloved, God's sense of wisdom and justice, and what is right, and what is not right, is infinitely perfect. It is far better and greater than our sense 
of justice and rightness. And if God determines that eternity in hell is the appropriate destination for the wicked, then so be it. God is right. Men may say that the doctrine is unfair. But that charge is not sustainable. And I say it's not sustainable because God has done everything he can possibly do to keep people from going there. We would have an argument. We would have an argument in saying that the doctrine of hell is unfair if, if Christ never came to die on the cross for our sins, if God never gave us this book to teach us about his word and his ways and his will, if those things were true, then we might have a leg to stand on. Well, we're all down here just doing terrible things, but we've got no guidance, we've got no direction, we have no sense of what we should be doing, then we'd have an argument. But that's not what God has done. He has done everything within his infinite power to make it possible that none of us end up in this place. So if I'm driving down the highway, and as I'm driving, I see speed limit signs. Every three or four miles, speed limit, 55 miles per hour, 55 miles per hour. I see a reminder every few miles as I'm driving. I see flashing yellow lights at all the major intersections. Slow down, dangerous place here. Don't go speeding through here. Use caution. I see signs that say speed checked by electronic radar. I disregard the signs. I blow down the highway at 75. I go into a construction zone and all the orange signs come out. Slow down. Don't speed through here. Let them live and I just blow through the construction zone, still going 75 miles an hour. I get through the construction zone, it's back again, 55, 55, I don't care. Pedal to the metal, I'm flying through here as quickly as I can, because I'm late. And then I see the worst thing of all, blue and red lights in the rear view mirror. If I say to the officer, well, this is just not fair. Excuse me, he will say. He will say, sir, there are signs up and down this highway telling you what the speed limit is. How can you say it isn't fair? How can you say you didn't know what the speed limit was? I have no legitimate right to be upset when the trooper pulls me over, do I? God has given us every possible advantage. He has held nothing back from us when it comes to knowing what we must do in order to secure an eternal destiny with him. We have signs all around us of his grace and his mercy. So how long will we push him away? Ignoring the signs, 
pushing him out of our lives, wanting nothing to do with him. The charge of unfairness simply will not stand. Did I answer every question you have about this? No. I have questions too. But hopefully tonight, you've walked away with something that you can use as you think about the biblical teaching on this subject, and it will help you understand it in a way that maybe you can use this to reach those in the world around us who are headed for this terrible, eternal fate. We're here to help you tonight if you are not a Christian and you need to become one because you do not want hell to be your eternal destination. We can help you with that tonight. Would you obey the gospel of Christ? Would you receive the teaching? Would you receive the grace and the mercy of God? We can help you tonight. We invite you. Please come as we stand and sing.